right, well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, welcome to Adat Etz Chaim, Tree of Life Congregation. Uh, uh, for those of you who are visiting, my name is Chris. I'm normally not up here, but every once in a while we like to give Mr. Manning a break, and so I'm giving him a little bit of a break. This week, we are going to be starting a new book of the Bible. We are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, or Sh 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 Shemuel Aleph, and um, this is coming hot on the heels of us just finishing the book of Ruth. So in the book of Ruth, we learned about during the time of the judges that there was this woman named Ruth, and she was an, uh, a Gentile who ended up getting folded into the flock of Israel, and she ended up being redeemed by a Goel. And so now we come to the book of 1 Samuel. As we get started in this time in the point of history of America that we live in, we're living in precarious times. There seems to be an uneasiness in the air. I think we can all feel it. We live in a, live in a time of dissatisfaction. We're dissatisfied with our politicians. We're dissatisfied with our economy. And we're dissatisfied with our overall moral standing as a country. And this, is where the children of Israel find themselves in the start of 1 Samuel, for it is the time of the judges. To give you an idea of where we're at here in the whole scheme of things, is God judged Israel with many judges, the last of which that are in the book of Shoftim or judges is Shimshon or Samson. So there's some 300 years of them being judged, and it was time for a change. You see, it had always been God's purpose to establish a king's kingship in Israel. And we know this is true because when we look in the Torah, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he explains it, what's going to happen when they have a king over themselves. However, the king must be done God's way and according to God's plan. In 1 Samuel, we see the process in which God will take a scattered group of individual tribes and under the banner of his chosen king, he will cement them together into a formidable, cohesive unit. The book will begin, as we'll see, with the prayer of a righteous, barren woman, and will close with the song of a humble, would-be king, both making references to God's deliverance and saving grace. So let's jump right in. Now, there was a certain Ephraimite man of Ramath Zophim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah, or Hannah, was childless. Now, Ramath is located in the hills of Ephraim, in the country, in the, ter uh, the territory, excuse me, of Ephraim. Which is funny, because that's where we just left off in the book of Ruth. Now, Elkanah... This is what we know about him. You know, usually in the Bible, when we go and we look at people's names in the Hebrew, we can be like, wow, look, their name describes them. Unfortunately, with Penina, with Hannah, and with Alkanah, we don't really get too much from their names. And I think there's a reason for that. Because the book of 1 Samuel isn't about Hannah. It is about Samuel and the coming kingship. But what we know about Elkanah is this, 
We know, first of all, that he's a descendant of Levi through Korah. We find that in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. We know that he, through this story that we're first going to read about, is a devoted man of God, and that his name actually does mean God has obtained. There is possibility that he's the unnamed prophet who will later come to Eli in chapter 2, warning him about the outcome and the ending of him and his children. And we also know that he has two wives, Penina, who has children, and Hannah, or Hannah, who's barren. Now this man used to go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to Adonai Sebaot, which is, means master of legions, in Shiloh. Now on that day, Elkanah would sacrifice and give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved Hannah, even though Adonai had closed her womb. It's at this particular time that Eli is serving as the Kohen Hagadol, and he's actually the interim leader of the nation following the death of Samson from the time of the judges. It's a time of spiritual lowness, which was reflected in the priesthood via Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to see later that their very presence at the tabernacle discouraged people from coming to worship. We see this in our own civilization, in our own culture today in the United States, where so many preachers on TV have made it such a burden for people to come and to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, year after year, they would travel to Shiloh, and her rival, that is Hannah's rival, would taunt her bitterly because Adonai had closed her womb. So it was that whenever they went up to the house of Adonai, Hannah wept and would not eat. Then her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not better than ten sons? Elkanah is a righteous man, and he sought to keep the commands of God. And yet there's an issue arising in his household. And like any other man, he tries to fix the problem himself. I got a little chuckle as I was preparing for this when his last words are, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Pretty sure in my own life I've said that to my wife. You're so sad about this one thing. I'm here. That doesn't help. I tried. <laughs> so he's a righteous man and he's trying to do what's right and he's trying to help his wife. But there's an issue that's arising. So what does this tell us? First of all, it tells us that even when we as fathers and as husbands seek spiritual righteousness and the betterment of our family, we need to constantly be vigilant to the affairs taking place in our homes. We can make our children come on Shabbat. We can pray along with our wives every day. But if there's other things that are going on and we don't address them, they're going to cause issues later on. They're going to cause tension and problems. Secondly, Perhaps it's not such a keen idea to have multiple wives. And all the women said, amen. And some of the men said, but wait! <laughs> While the Torah does not specifically command us to not take multiple wives, in fact, there's many rules and regulations if you were to take a second wife, it seems that every time we're given the option to peer into people who have multiple wives, 
it doesn't always seem to end up very well. It seems at the end, though you could be like uh, Solomon, like Shlomo, where at the end he talks about how these women have just like berated me. They just dragged me down. And I guess that'll happen when you have seven, uh, uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. But we even see that with Abraham. Because when he goes to introduce himself, he says, hey, my days have been long and hard. Nope, that's Jacob. Sorry, it's Jacob. My days have been long and hard. It's been said by men that are much older and wiser than myself that there's many reasons why it's more beneficial for a man to have only one wife. Here's some of my favorites. <laughs> I just got to put a caveat here. I shared these with my wife, and she didn't laugh. She laughed at the first one, but then there was no more laughter. So I'm kind of wondering if I should share them, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, if you have questions or comments, feel free to email Mike. <laughs> so the top six reasons why it's more beneficial for a man to have only one wife. First of all, if you have more than one wife, let's say for the example of these examples, you have two wives. You'll have twice as many birthdays and anniversaries to remember. That's hard enough for me. In my phone, you look at my calendar in my phone, it tells me when everybody's birthdays are. Don't ask me when my kids' birthdays are. I love them dearly, don't get me wrong. I just don't have the storage capacity to remember their birthdays. I should make that a priority, though. Secondly, you're going to have to pick, if you have two wives, who gets the second garage door opener. <laughs> that could be a battle in and of itself. It's bad enough to have one, but now you're going to have two honey-do lists. Number four, two wives means two showers, which equals no hot water when it's your turn. <laughs> Number five, your one drawer and half a foot of closet space now will be cut in half. And number six of the, the beneficial reasons to not have more than one wife, two mother-in-laws. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I said, email Mike. So in Bavar Basra, the sages of old tell us this about Penina's provocation of Hannah. They say, Penina tormented Hannah by asking her sarcastically when they would go up every year, did you buy a cloak today for your older child or an outfit for your younger one? Now that's a pretty jerky thing to say. But the sages say that Penina's intentions were actually noble. For by not allowing Hannah to make peace with her condition, Penina intended to, to, to goad her to pray for a child, which indeed did happen. However, even if that is the case, good intentions never justify cruel tactics, ever. They come back to haunt you. You know, in fact, they say that the rabbis draw out that eventually Penina, who had 10 kids, would lose eight of her children. They would die. They always come back. Remember the seeds that we sow, we will reap eventually. As fellow believers, we're admonished in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, to let no harmful words come out of our mouth, but only what is beneficial for the building up of others according to the need, so that it gives grace to those who hear it. 
And now we're going to see Elkanah's words of encouragement to his wife as they infect her in a positive way. It's fun to mess around every once in a while, to poke a little fun, to, to, to mess with each other a little bit. But you know, even in messing around, sometimes we can cause unknown harm. And we got to be careful. We're here to lift up each other with psalms and hymns and beautiful songs. I mean, and that doesn't mean necessarily I need you to come up to me and, and start singing a psalm at me. But, you know, the encouraging words are great for each other. We never want to hear about the, the things that tear us down and divide us. So after eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah got up. Now Eli, the Kohen, was sitting in his seat by the doorpost of the temple of Adonai. So and her soul was bitter, and so she prayed to Adonai and wept. So she made a vow and said, Adonai, save oath. If you will indeed look upon my affliction, remember me and grant your handmaid a son, then I will give him to Adonai all the days of his life, and no razor will ever touch his head. So we see that Elkanah, even though it was a little funny, you know, am I not better than ten sons to you? His words of encouragement hit home for her, and they actually drove her to repentance. So even if this idea of Penina chastising her and goading her every year could have helped, ultimately it was her husband's positive affirmation. You know, and that's something that I repeat constantly when I'm up here because it's constantly on my heart that I need to encourage my wife daily. She needs that. She needs that because her struggles and her emotional desires are different than mine. You know, sometimes our faith needs a little jump start, a little nudge, or a reminder of what we need to be doing, especially when we don't feel like doing it. That's what happened here with her husband. He gave her that little nudge. I've said it before in the past, and it still rings true today, that if we start to step out toward God and with God, he will show up and he will make himself strong. But we need to step out. We need to take that initial move toward God. And he's like, I, I got you now. Here I am. Because he wants us to desire him. Just like we choose and we desire our children to want and be with us. It's the same situation with our creator. Now in Hannah's case, her husband's compassion brought her to the place of complete surrender to the will of God. Husbands, remember, we have the ability to bring our wives closer to God by simple words of affirmation. That's amazing. That's a superpower. So Hannah cries out to God, the God of legions, to grant her just one child from his many to raise his own. That's the idea here, God of many legions. It's not simply that he has an army to do battle on his behalf. It's that he has an army, a legions of human beings at his disposal that he has created. And Hannah cries out and says, can I have just one? There's so many. There's so many that are coming. Can I just have one to raise? And in doing so, she's going to offer him back to God as a Nazarite. We learned about the Nazarite as we went through the book of Judges. They can't eat grapes, they can't touch dead people, and they can't cut their hair. All of which Samson violated in the end. And that's the time we're in now. So it's kind of cool that God says, hey, you had a Nazarite as a judge. You have an interim time where you're being led by the Kohen Haggadol. However, I've got one final judge that's going to come. His name is Samson. He will be a Nazarite. He's going to show you what I really wanted Samson to do. And he's going to bring forth your king. 
So Hannah prayed a long time before Adonai, and Eli watched her mouth move because her lips were moving. But no sound could be heard, for she was praying in her heart. Eli, thinking she was drunk, said to her, How long will you be drunk? Get rid of your wine. But Hannah responded, No, my lord, I'm a woman with an oppressed spirit. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. Instead, I've been pouring out my soul before Adonai. You know, this come, brings to mind in the Brit Chadashah, we're told to pray continually, you know, and even with utterances that we can't understand because sometimes life is just so painful, I don't know what to say. All I have is, oh, I get that way when I watch the news. I'm like, oh, and I believe that's a prayer to Adonai that, oh, help us, please. And God says, that's okay. You're not always going to wax eloquently. In fact, it seems in this case, this is what he prefers. This is what he's been seeking from Hannah, for her to cry out from her heart. Hannah continues, Don't consider your handmaid a wicked woman, for out of my great anguish and grief I've been praying until now. Then Eli responded, Go in peace, go in shalom, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you asked of him. And Hannah responded, May your maidservant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way, she ate, and her countenance was no longer dejected. So we have a very beautiful thing as well. As leaders, we have the power to uplift other people. But that comes with a caveat that we have to be very careful with. Because Eli's sons are going to struggle with this whole issue of sexual immorality. Which means that as leaders, we have to be careful that as we uplift and we lift up other people, especially of the opposite sex, that we don't let it go further than it needs to go hey, you're doing great, you're doing awesome, keep going with God, I'll see you later. That's the end of it. No, we don't need to go out to dinner. No, you don't need to come for a private meeting with me and you alone. Nope, nope, hard pass. We need to be careful because this is the situation that Eli's sons are going to find themselves in during this time. So they got up early in the morning and worshipped Adonai before they returned back to their home in Ramah. And Adonai remembered Hannah, so that it came to pass at the turn of the year that she conceived and gave birth to a son. That's so awesome. We read that in our half tour. That happened, too, with the, the um, 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 Shunammite woman, the Shunammite window, that she conceived and had a son as well. So it came to pass at the turn of the year that she conceived and gave birth to the son, and she called his name Samuel, or Shemuel, because I have asked Adonai for a son. Shemuel has a nice meaning. And it means God has heard. However, Shemuel, this name, comes from the passive participle of Shema, which means to hear and to subsequently obey. This, so when I started looking into the passive participle, I had to call Beth, because I was like, Beth, what is a passive participle? I need to know, because I'm trying to figure this out. And she's like, I don't know. Let me find out. I even asked my wife, I was like, Jessica, what is a passive participle? And she's like, I don't know. So we Googled it. Google was no help at all. And so I'm just sitting here dumbfounded. I'm like, I know there's something special here. And Beth actually ended up finding it for me. Like it took her, like she had to go through like three or four different books and she finally found it. So thank you, Beth. I appreciate that. So this means that his name is prophetic and will ultimately reflect the personality and lifestyle he will live. So Shemuel isn't simply God heard, but the idea that 
Shemuel will hear. And then subsequently, he will obey. And we're going to see that as he hears the voice of God. You see, Hannah is not simply saying that God has heard the answered her prayer, but that as a result of her prayer, God has granted her petition by giving her a son who will hear him and afterward will obey. It's worth noting that according to our sages, God remembered Hannah and she conceived on Rosh Hashanah, which is called the Day of Remembrance. Coincidentally, this is also the day that Joseph was freed from prison. That's why we see it mentioned frequently throughout the day's liturgy and the reason why the Haftorah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah is the story of Hannah. That's so cool. You know, to see that God would reach down and touch us at our, the height as we're coming into the high holy days, of, these days of repentance, and God would come in and touch Hannah and say, you know what? It's time. That's so cool. You know, and we see him do that so often with these barren women in scriptures. It's often around his pointed times and feasts that they, they conceive and then they'll give birth. From that point until the child was weaned, when Elkanah and his household went up to fulfill his vow and to offer the annual sacrifice to Adonai, Hannah didn't go. For she had said to her husband, when the child is weaned, then I will bring him so that he may appear before Adonai and stay there, at the, at the, stay there forever. So her husband Elkanah said to her, do what seems best to you. Stay until you have weaned him. Only may Adonai establish his word. The word that Elkanah asked to be established is that of the prophetic naming of his son Samuel by his wife. You see, it's the hope of every parent that their children grow up to meet the same standard. But this standard doesn't just happen without any effort on our part. As parents, especially as husbands, we must put in the effort. Because a godly generation doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It's created when the hearts of the fathers, according to scripture, turn toward their children. And then the hearts of the children will turn back to the father. It's up to us as fathers. You know, we look at everything that's going on in the news and with our world and we're like, what is happening? It's because as fathers, we failed to raise up a generation that goes after Hashem, that seeks after God's face. We have this superpower that we talked about earlier to encourage our wives and to encourage our children to be better. Verse 24, when the boy was weaned, she took him along with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a jar of wine and brought him to the house of Adonai in Shiloh. Now after they slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli saying, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by you here praying to Adonai. For this boy it is that I've prayed. And Adonai has granted me the petition that I asked of him. So in turn, I dedicate him to Adonai. As long as he lives, he will be dedicated to Adonai. Then he bowed and worshiped, and there before Adonai. So Samuel, two, three, four, around that age group. We're not told exactly what his age was. I think it'd be kind of hard for someone the age of Eli to really keep an eye on a two-year-old, you know, especially as a Kohen Haggadol. Maybe he was three, but I don't know. I have, uh, I have five children aging, ranging from age seven on up to 15, and it's hard to keep an eye on any of them. So, I mean, at this point, he's adopting a child is what's happening here, and uh, he's got a lot on his plate. 
But it's kind of cool because he's going to be able to make up for the misgivings of his older children. You know, so God, God is a God of second and third and fourth chances. He's a redeemer. He gives us opportunities to make up for the ways in which we think that we've messed up. And it's hard to say at this point who's doing the bowing. So we know that there is a male figure that's bowing at the end of this verse here bowing before Adonai, and we're not quite sure because there's three guys that are involved. We have Elkanah the father, we have Shemuel the boy, and we have Eli the uh, priest. One of them is bowing. I kind of like the idea that it's Samuel. I mean, could you imagine Hannah from the time she's weaning him to teach him to say, hey, I'm going to have to give you up, but it's because you're going to worship God. Let me show you how to worship God. You know, as mothers, you have that connection to a child that a father can only dream about because you got that intimacy with that child. And so someone's bowing, and I like to think it's Samuel. So then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in Adonai. This, this by the way, so we're, we switch gears a little bit. This is the prayer that we're talking about. So this is Hannah's prayer after she dedicates Eli. She says, my heart exalts in Adonai. My horn is lifted high in Adonai. Remember, a horn is a sign of strength and of power. I smile wide over my enemies, for I rejoice in your salvation. There is none as holy as Adonai, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so proudly, since insolence comes out of your mouth. For Adonai is the all-knowing God, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble are armed with strength. It's kind of interesting in the middle of this prayer as she goes along. You can see her taking little pop shots at Penina as well. Because remember, Penina chastised her for not having children. And she's like, ha ha, God knew. You didn't know. Ha! What do you think about those apples? She continues on. The well-fed hire themselves for bread, but those starving hunger no more. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Oh, she's prophesying. This is so cool. She's prophesying in her prayer. But she, with many sons, languishes. Adonai causes death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Adonai makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and also lifts up. He raises the helpless from the dust. He lifts the needy from the dunghill to make them sit with the nobles and granting them a seat of honor. For the earth's pillars are Adonai's and he has set the world on them. This isn't to say the world is set on pillars. The idea is that Adonai owns it all. He's taken care of it. He's built it all. He knows what's going to happen. Adonai guards the steps of his godly ones but the wicked are silenced in darkness. For one does not prevail by might. Those who oppose Adonai will be shattered. He thunders against them in heaven. He judges the ends of the earth. He gives strength to his king, exalting the whole horn of his anointed one. Another prophecy. The king isn't coming yet. Samuel's the one who's going to appoint the first king and the second king. But this is going even deeper. Because Hannah's not only predicting and prophesying about the king, but she's prophesying about the coming king, the one true king, the Messiah who will come and rule and reign. She declares the coming of the anointed one, the one whose horns are strong, the one who has the strength to rule and reign over the earth. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, with the bo- and then while the boy served Adonai before Eli the Kohen, Now, Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not acknowledge Adonai, and their custom was that whenever a man offered a sacrifice, the Kohen's servant would come along while the meat was boiling, 
and he would thrust it into the, uh, he would thrust a fork into the, a three-pronged fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron. And whatever the fork brought up, the Kohen would take for himself. This is why they, de- this is how they dealt with all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. This word worthless here means lawlessness and shows the complete contempt they had for God and his word and the authority that he actually had over them and their standing as the priesthood. Even before they burned the fat, the Kohen's servant would come and say to the one offering sacrifices, give the Kohen meat for roasting, since he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, let them first burn the fat up as smoke, and then take as much as you desire, he would reply, no, you must give it now, otherwise I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before Adonai, for the men despised the offering of Adonai. What a sad spot to be in when the religious leaders of the, of the, of the country, of the people, are supposed to be setting the example, and the people are despised by them. May that never be the case for, here, for us here at Adaretz Chaim. May what we do never cause you to stumble. But Samuel ministered before Adonai, girded with a linen ephod, and his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him every year when she would come up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may Adonai give you offspring from this woman instead of the one she requested from Adonai. Then they would return to their place. So they kept coming up year by year by year to visit Samuel. And Eli is so impressed with Samuel that he prayed that more like him would come into the world. What a beautiful prayer. I think that's a prayer we need to to grab hold of, that more people like Samuel would come into the world. So Adonai visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before Adonai. If this statement sounds familiar, it's because we see a similar statement in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 52. You see, following the Passover, Yeshua's parents began to head home, and not knowing that their son was among the group of travelers, they continued on for a full day's journey. Once they realized Yeshua was missing, they returned to Jerusalem and found him sitting in the temple discussing the word of God with the Torah teachers. Obviously, they were concerned about his well-being, but he reminds them that he has a purpose and a mission to complete. But verses 51 and 52 state that he then went home with them to Nazareth Nazareth, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these words in her heart, and Yeshua kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. There's a reason why the gospel writer put this in here. So give us an idea and an understanding and a remembrance of Samuel. Same thing happened with Samuel. And Samuel changed the world, just like Messiah Yeshua will. So Samuel has a special calling on his life. For the people found themselves, just as we find ourselves today, living in precarious times. The people were discouraged about their leaders, their security, because the Philistines were knocking at their door at the time, and the overall moral standing of their religious leaders. But the thing to always remember is that God has his man standing in the wings waiting to bring about change. Whether it be a Samson, a Samuel, 
a David or a Yeshua, God has not abandoned us, but is simply waiting for his perfect timing to take place. And as we close, I'd like to read a prayer for the congregation. May salvation arise from heaven. May grace, kindness, and mercy, long life, ample provision, and divine aid, physical health, perfect vision, and healthy children who will never neglect the study of God's instruction be granted to this entire congregation in the name of Messiah Yeshua, great and small, women and children. May the king of the universe bless you, prolong your lives, increase your days, and add to your years. May you be saved and delivered from all distress and disease. May our master in heaven be your help at all times. Shabbat shalom.